Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. One of the greatest fears I hear from women who are working through a betrayal trauma recovery process while they're in a relationship with somebody else, married or dating or engaged, is this constant fear of a relapse. There's this gnawing anxiety that comes up almost on a daily basis of wondering, is he going to act out again? Is he going to turn back to the addiction? Is he going to betray me again? And this can hold a lot of women emotionally hostage and leave them feeling very anxious and in some ways create a low-level anxiety that's just really hard to shake off. In today's episode, my guest wants to let women know that they don't have to live like this. Instead of focusing on relapse prevention all the time, trying to make sure the relapse doesn't happen again, which by the way, is not their job. Instead, they can focus on what she calls relapse preparedness, helping women feel prepared for what they will do when and if this ever happens again, helping women recognize that this plan begins and ends with them. Part of living in recovery with someone else who's addicted or dealing with infidelity or other kinds of sexual betrayals is this ongoing uncertainty, especially in the beginning and even throughout long-term recovery of whether or not this will happen again. Women don't have to live with this kind of fear. They don't have to live putting their life on hold, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Instead, they can live a life that is full of purpose, full of joy, full of movement, and then they know that they've got a plan in place if they ever need to use it. Much like a fire drill or a plan for a natural disaster, they don't have to live with constant anxiety, wondering if something is going to happen and how they'll respond to it. My guest today is Galen Ray Emerson, and she is a betrayal trauma recovery coach. One thing I love about Galen is that she is so highly trained. She is an APSAT certified partner coach, a ICA certified professional coach, ICA certified divorce recovery coach, ICA certified couples relationship coach, and an ICF associate certified coach. And she is uh, associated with coaching federations, the National Association of Divorce Professionals. She specializes in working with women, especially heal and thrive in the aftermath of divorce. And she'll tell you on here, she herself has gone through divorce and betrayal trauma and has dealt with these very realities in her own life. And she is passionate about helping women know that they are not without options that they absolutely can grow and thrive in the aftermath of these very difficult life experiences. I'm so glad she was willing to come on the Illuminate podcast today and share with us all of her great knowledge about relapse preparedness and other betrayal trauma recovery thoughts and ideas. She's very creative, very enthusiastic. And so I want to introduce you to Galen Ray Emerson. Well, welcome to the Illuminate podcast. Galen, I'm so grateful you're willing to spend time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. It's really nice to be here. So a lot of 
What we're going to talk about today is this concept of relapse preparedness. Now, that may be a phrase a lot of my listeners aren't super familiar with, right? Because we often talk about relapse prevention. And that, you know, the relapse prevention is really the responsibility of the person with the addiction or the compulsive behaviors. But a lot of betrayed partners, all betrayed partners that I've ever talked to, feel in a way powerless to do anything to stop a relapse from happening. And so, what do they do with all that time, right? Do they just sit around and bite their nails or go into worst case scenario? You know, there's a whole bunch of things that people do to try and cope with all that uncertainty. But I love this concept that you've developed around relapse preparedness to really support partners in being able to use this time effectively, especially when they're choosing. Well, this really only applies to people that are choosing to stay in relationships with those who have addictions, correct? Well, not necessarily if someone is separated or divorced from someone you share children with that person or otherwise impacted by their choices to stay in recovery or not. It it can have an impact for those who aren't together, but definitely the majority, I find it most effective with those who are choosing to stay in a relationship. And like you said, doing that nail biting thing for a while, especially at the beginning. Yeah, that's great. And we definitely, yeah, I can, this has a ripple effect regardless of the relationship status Mm -hmm. for sure. So that's a great consideration. So let's dive right in. Tell me, what is this relation, this uh, relapse preparedness concept? And you're welcome to even go back story and tell me kind of where that came from as well. It's always interesting. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to do that actually. So my vision for this relapse preparedness thing kind of evolved from three separate ideas or awarenesses, and they all kind of collided in precisely the right time and space to kind of pull this together into, into the concept we're talking about today. So firstly, as a coach myself, as also just kind of being a woman among other women recovering from sexual betrayal, I've been hearing you know, the whole time this daily deep fear and anxiety that so many partners express that their loved ones might relapse. So that their loved ones might step away from the recovery they've started and return instead to those previous patterns of compulsive and secretive sexual behavior. So at a really basic level, I've always known that relapse is a topic of significant concern to partners who are surviving and healing or trying to do so from sexual betrayal trauma. The second thing, because I work so closely with professionals who treat and support clients who are the sex addicts or the porn addicts in the relationship, I'd begun to hear these professionals, people who I really admire and respect, talking about these relapse prevention strategies, you know, the ways that sex and porn addicts can structure recovery plans so that they minimize the likelihood of their return to those sexual behaviors. And honestly, as I would listen to these professionals address this question, this, you know, this really loaded topic with passion and proactivity with their sex addict clients, I felt a little bit left out of the party. I mean, I recognize that as partners of sex addicts, my clients and I can't do the footwork involved in preventing a relapse. But the idea got me thinking that even if preventing a relapse falls outside of our reach and responsibility, that doesn't mean that we need to sit back passively and leave our emotional fate in the hands of the sex addicts or porn addicts with whom we share life. So that seed kind of was planted for me to begin asking myself and my colleagues, so if we can't, we can't actively prevent the pain and trauma of a possible relapse, what kind of productive and proactive actions can we take on our own behalf in the meantime? So that third awareness that kind of jived with both of those two things happened around 2012, right in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. And I was working part-time as a freelance writer for various publications. And one of my clients hired me to write an article on active emergency preparedness. So basically encouraging families to plan and prepare for the worst case scenario. And in that case, you know, it was a natural disaster that was, was, you know, in the headlines at the moment. 
but also simultaneously hoping and praying that those worst case scenarios never happened, never became necessary. So my subtitle for that article was Just In Case. And kind of inspired by that, fast forward a few years when I began to brainstorm ways that partners can actually do something with their concerns about relapse rather than just sitting and waiting for something that may or may not happen, like the emergency preparedness, I stumbled into this fantastic little metaphor, you know, point of comparison between those two otherwise unrelated, unwanted experiences. And that's how this whole passion for relapse preparedness was born in my life and in my business. Yeah, I love that. And the natural disaster metaphor is perfect. You know, this morning, actually, I used the metaphor of, you know, living in a flood zone. Mm-hmm. Like you could wake up every day and just be terrified that your house is going to get flooded or you can have a preparedness plan in place right. so you can actually function. And this, this idea of preparedness is really to allow these women to be able to just carry on with their lives and function knowing that they're going to be okay regardless of what happens. Right. Right. Or at least as okay as they reasonably can be. I love, yeah, absolutely. What yeah. I. <laughs> you got to really qualify this stuff, don't you? Because it can sometimes sound <laughs> somewhat uh, dismissive or uninformed. But yeah, absolutely. This is, this is as you know, you can do as well as you could under the circumstances, but that you at least are going to be okay to one degree or another. You're not going to be just totally non-functional. Right. At least long-term. Yeah, there's obviously short-term struggles, but this preparedness, it gives you something to come back to. It gives you something to hold on to that keeps you from spinning out. Yes. Absolutely. That's yeah, the point. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So one question that we get a lot in my work with women is when we talk about relapse or slips, they get so hung up on mm. this terminology. Before we get any deeper in this, you know, do you want to, let's just clarify and talk about what are we talking about here? Because I've had just sort of on a side note, I've had some women say things to me like, the word slip sounds like, you know, that Britney Spears song, you know, oops, I did it again. <laughs> Like it's being dismissed, like it's something that isn't being taken seriously. It's an excuse where, you know, relapse is, you know, maybe not as nuanced as it needs to be for people that are really working hard in recovery. So a lot of women and and even men that I talk to feel somewhat turned around with all this terminology and we don't want to use minimizing language, but words do matter. So what's your take on that? Right, right. Well, and I love that you said that words matter because in my experience, words matter more to some people than others. So some people really, you know, it's not the word or the label that is important. For others, it's extremely important. So, you know, every one of us has kind of the autonomy to decide how important labels are to us. And I typically have three kind of guidelines for labeling. Labels should be personal, meaning they should mean something to the person who's using the label. It should be purposeful, meaning that it's got a job to do. You know, something, it creates something that wouldn't exist without the label. And the third one being powerful. It needs to get the job done, right? So one of the things that's challenging for the partners that I work with is what happens when your definition or your experience of a relapse or a slip or a lapse, and you know, those definitions kind of overlap sometimes, versus what your husband or your partner believes to be a slip or a relapse, what his therapist says, what his sponsor might say, you know, it gets to be really jumbled really fast. Yeah. So one of the things I start with, we well, you know this is like really early in our relapse preparedness work is giving partners permission to decide for themselves what behaviors would define a lapse or a relapse to them. Right. And then decide if and how they wish to communicate or collaborate on that conversation with their partner. You know, so much of trauma recovery for partners involves taking back our power of choice and taking responsibility for our own actions, reactions, responses. And that includes things like what do we decide to categorize 
different behaviors and different situations in our life. So just super fast, kind of my starting point with partners for the whole slip, lapse, relapse conversation is that a slip might be a one-time, short-lived, non-severe step toward that behavior. So sometimes it might be clicking on a link that comes up in a website. Sometimes it might be flipping through a particular magazine that they know is, you know, middle circle or, you know, getting toward the stuff that they really don't want to do. Sometimes, you know, it's a quick bout of, you know, short physical stimulation, but then dropping it all and reaching out and getting back on the wagon, whatever it might be. But it's a get yourself back into the intervention mode and back into sobriety as quick as you can. A lapse is a little bit more intensive than that. It's it's a further step back toward the addiction. But again, it's got that type of intervention where you go back to the beginning and get back on the horse, so to speak. But a relapse is different. In most cases, relapse involves some significant degree of not only kind of moving away from what sobriety and sexual integrity really means, it's also often characterized by some deception, some hiding, some long-term reaction where the person who's engaging the behaviors doesn't necessarily want to stop immediately or doesn't want to be accountable for what's going on. So it can, it can often rely upon that duration or that period of deception involved in the relapse behavior. Right. Absolutely. Basically, a relapse is a bunch of slips that are hidden, that are right, that are ignored, and then it just progresses like that. And there's, right. there's active deception. There's active concealment going on with relapses. And clearly, way more consequential long-term to be living with somebody who's relapsing all the time. Right. And that's another conversation we have a lot of times. There's such a thing as a lapse or a one-time relapse, and then there's chronic relapse. And that's right. a whole different animal altogether. The strategies and what it takes to keep yourself emotionally, physically, sexually, relationally, financially, spiritually safe in those situations is night and day different. Absolutely. Well, and what I think is good about this right now is for women to really understand Regardless of what he's defining this as with his support network or for himself, in terms of how he defines you know, his behavior, X, Y, and Z, if I do this versus that, you get to decide. You get to decide for you what it means. Because if it hits you right in the chest, even though for him, it may not even like be a blip on the radar, that's okay. And right. you can start taking actions with your preparedness plan to start taking care of yourself, setting limits, readjusting things so that you can cope and survive. Because your sensitivity level may be ratcheted up way higher than his, and that's totally normal and fine. It's okay. And it may fluctuate over time. Yeah. You know, there may be times where sensitivity is higher due to all kinds of different external or contextual circumstances, other times where things are less intolerable. So it's definitely an evolving, organic, living, breathing experience that we go through. Right. Not a one and done etched in stone. Here's my plan. I can't deviate from it, even though like I'm feeling pretty good right now, or I'm super overloaded and I need something different. Right. Well, and that's the thing with a plan like this. The the goal is a starting point. Yeah. Goal is when something happens that catches you off guard and you're trying to get your footing and you're not sure how to do that, where where you're going to get your grip. It's something that can get you started so that you can then lean into that healing process more easily than if you didn't even have a starting place. Right. And when you're choosing to stay in relationship with somebody who can hurt you with a slip or a relapse, having this in place is absolutely essential to your own mental, physical, spiritual health. Like, you know, without this, you're just going to be trying to operate with a compromised brain and body, trying to figure out how to do this. And by then, like you said, the time for preparation, it's too late and you're going to be hurting more than possibly if you didn't have this in place. Absolutely. So 
Okay, so let's move on. Let's talk about what makes a good relapse preparedness plan. What does it look like? What should be involved if a woman's thinking about, okay, I get that I need to protect myself. I need to be prepared. Where do I start? What do I do? Right. So, you know, the bedrock of this whole concept is that it really begins and ends with you. So when you find out that information that you didn't want to find out, whether he tells you, whether you discover something, whether it's email tech, you know, whatever, when that information comes in, thinking about what is it that you need to get your footing to be able to start figuring out what you want to do in response to all of this. You know, when we talk about trauma resolution, the very first stage of any of it involves some safety and stability. So we ask questions like, what would it take you to feel safe? And it's interesting because I just had a client the other day who said she didn't really identify with the word safe. Safe wasn't something that she found herself lacking in the aftermath of a discovery like that, but stability was a word she could really relate to. Yeah. You know, what is it going to take to get your footing under you? So, you know, for her, it was leaving the house, spending a couple hours, just browsing at Target, <laughs> you know, getting a <laughs> coffee. It was that just putting physical distance between herself and the situation and the conversations that we're having so that she could lower her intensity and anxiety level a little bit. Sometimes it's a matter of, you know, deciding to sit down and have a tough conversation versus pulling back from one. Sometimes there are things that need to be asked some things that need to be said. Sometimes there's a third party involved. But oftentimes I really start by encouraging clients to think about their physical well-being. You know, what is it going to take to help you ratchet down that intensity? Sometimes it's a matter of getting it out. Sometimes it's a matter of venting, yelling, screaming, crying, whatever to get it actually discharge that energy. Other times it's about, you know, going more internal with it all. We start about physical sensations. What helps you feel calm? Is it heat? Is it softness? Is it coldness? Is it exercise? Is it, you know, interacting with someone else? What is the physical stuff that can kind of help to ground you, like you said, brain and body? Another thing that can be really important to think through and work through is the concept of, you know, what do you do when you've got social engagements, spiritual community engagements, work, you know, kids stuff? family, all the things that are on your list to do, and you get this information at the most inopportune times. I mean, seriously, that's always when it happens. Giving ourselves permission to opt out, giving ourselves permission to call in sick, to cancel whatever, to say, I'm not going to be there and not even have to offer an explanation in some cases, giving us that space to be able to feel our feelings without needing to do so in a social or a public environment like that. And at the same time, there are other women who don't want or need. What they actually want to do is throw themselves into those social engagements, their work, their family, their kids, their community, as a way of, like we talked about before, kind of de-escalating that tension and intensity until they're better able to focus and deal with the conversations that have to happen about the relapse. So it really is not a one-size-fits-all, and it's important oftentimes for women to just start giving themselves permission to respond to what they need in that context rather than you know what, what the calendar says has to happen on day XYZ. Other women, again, by contrast, really need to re-engage life away from the, when we do this relapse preparedness stuff, is that it's not one size fits all. It really isn't. What's important to and helpful to Jay or Jenny Doe, you know, so really plan. And I would say the last thing, and, and this is just a big picture overview, right? But the last thing that I find can be really helpful and really important is not only looking at what do I do in response to this relapse or in response to this information, but what part of my life can I ratchet up and take back a little bit? Like there's so much energy and intensity usually generated by news that can be heartbreaking or traumatic or 
saddening, triggering grief, all of those things. So how can we take that energy and really use it to do something that we maybe have been wanting or needing to do for a while? How can we leverage it into helping us make the big decisions? You know, for some women I've worked with, a relapse can be something that convinces them that they really do want to move to a different location where they're supported by more friends and family. Maybe they do want to go back to school to increase their income potential. So worst case scenario, if they end up separated or divorced, they can have a better means to support themselves. There's all kinds of different projects and passions that partners can throw themselves into fueled by the intensity of you know the grief and the trauma and the disappointment and all of that that comes with a relapse. So to kind of go back to what we started with, that concept of it begins and ends with you. It's really a way to make the relapse experience less about the actions of another person over which we have so little control or influence and more about our own selves, which is, again, where all of that power lies. I love this idea that the plan begins and ends with you, which is really to say your plan is not going to look the same as someone else's plan. So as helpful as it might be to get examples and even talk to other people who are trying to create their own preparedness plans, you have to slow down and really get clear on what do I need based on my temperament, my experience, my relationships, my commitments, obligations. There's just so many pieces. And you suggest actually formally writing this thing down like a plan instead of just having it in your head. Yep. Yeah. We When we do this in groups or when I do it individually with clients, we have a template. You know, We basically start out with some key questions and then really, really customize it. And one of the things that you just mentioned that is important, it's always also a good idea to leave yourself some options. Because if there's one thing trauma survivors don't tolerate very well, it's being backed into a corner and feeling like we've somehow painted ourselves into a situation that isn't what we thought it was. So I really, really like when these relapse preparedness plans have some flexibility and options built into them rather than having only one specific solution in mind. Because who the heck really knows what you're going to feel like when you ultimately get to that point, if you get to that point. Yeah, for sure. And what, what would you say to women who even the concept of having to think about or anticipate, mm-hmm. you know, a relapse or a slip like this just triggers so much anxiety that they can't even go there? What would you say to them? Right. So there are a couple of things I say. First of all, and this is really interesting to most women, they don't always necessarily think of this on their own. The fact that that anxiety is there can actually be an indicator that they're connected with reality. Like they're not somehow living in denial. They're not somehow letting themselves believe in a fantasy that this is not a possibility. You know, we see that all the time. Things are good now. It's happily ever after. Everything is behind us, et cetera. So to tell someone who's feeling this anxiety about this preparedness planning, you know, that's actually a good thing. It means you're working on terms that are realistic and relevant to the situation that you're in. I love that. Yep. Yeah. Just a simple reframe, but it makes such a huge difference, right? Another thing is we work, when I do this, when I do this work with clients, either in a group or an individual setting, we work on a lot of self-soothing grounding techniques. So the kind of things that we learn to focus on one particular area of work and set aside other things that are going on. We learn to connect with things that we know versus all of the things that it feels like we don't know. We do exercises like learning to simultaneously hold in our hearts and our minds both the good stuff and the bad stuff, the hopes and the fears, and to learn that we have the internal capacity to tolerate that. Like sometimes we feel like we're going to get pulled in half if we try to entertain both our hope for our relationship and also our fears about it. But when we actually have that conversation in a safe and supportive environment, 
what we usually find out is that we're actually much more capable of managing those polarities than we initially thought that we were. So those are some of the ways that when women say to me, I don't even know if I can go there. You know, that's kind of kind of how the message comes across. I challenge them gently to say, well, let's talk about that. Maybe you can go there better than you think you can. Yeah, I love that. And even pointing out that that for, for virtually all these women, they've already done this to one degree or another. They've had to function. They've had to lean into this. They They had stuff dumped on them that they didn't anticipate. And yet they're here. They've managed it. They figured it out. Right. And I love the validation there that the anxiety and, and the worry is actually something that's working to help them mm-hmm. stay in reality. Mm-hmm. Because right, there's nothing worse than pretending that things are better than they really are. Right. <laughs> right. That is a big slippery slope. Yep. Um, I've been there. <laughs> I've lived that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a scary one. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love that. And so who is a relapse preparedness plan for? I mean, at the beginning, we talked about it's not just for women in committed relationships, but who would benefit from this? Right. Well, I do think it is most applicable to those who are choosing to give things another try, who are choosing to stay in a relationship with hopes that things will get better rather than worse. And this kind of goes back to the core of why do we do this? You know, when you mentioned at the beginning, kind of that ever-present day-to-day anxiety about this, I most often hear it described as waiting for the other shoe to drop. Hear that one a lot. Yeah. So this is not intended to be something that you keep at the forefront of your life day after day after day. This is designed for someone who wants to not do that, (laughs) who wants (laughs) to be able to say, okay, let's deal with this and then put it off to the side while we keep living and building our lives and our relationships. So it's actually most effective and most important for those who don't want to stay in that day to day anxiety anymore. And, you know, as you know, as a, as a clinician, it's not always on demand. Like women, women, men, partners, human beings don't necessarily say, I can choose in this moment to not worry about that. But it's one of the tools and mechanisms we have to replace that day-to-day anxiety with more of a responsibility, like you've taken care of business, and now you're going to get about the business of living the rest of life. So... Yeah, I love that because so much of, you know, obviously recovery for the person who's struggling to overcome an addiction, it, there's nothing passive about it. It's so active. Right. You know, there's meetings and da, 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 there's reading and all kinds of stuff. And for a lot of women that I work with, there's an initial, you know, few months of a lot of activity and, and you know, things and they kind of get things stabilized. But then all of a sudden you can kind of start to hear the crickets. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, then the anxiety settles in and it's kind of just a waiting game. It feels like, well, they say most relapse happen at six months or a year and they read all these things right. and they're starting to just start to go worst case scenario. And then they start to feel more paralyzed. But what I love about this is that having this proactively in place is a very active ongoing thing that just kind of hums along in the background. Yep. It's not something that they're you know actively dealing with every single day, but they're building in their self-care. They're building in these things to kind of keep them conditioned right. and ready if they ever need it. And if they don't, they still get to have a lot of great self-care and healthy boundaries and everything is going to work and they're gonna, there's going to be growth regardless, yes. but they've got something in place. So pa- so recovery for betrayed women is not passive. It's not just a waiting game. <laughs> and that's huge. That's absolutely right? huge. Right. And to believe that you're somehow just the passive recipient or the passive victim of somebody who's just going to destroy your life or not destroy your life is really disempowering for women. And, and I love what you're saying that they, they need to know that they can do more than that and they should do more than that. They deserve more than that because of what they've you know, been, been through. 
Yeah, that's that's great. So Galen, I know that you uh, love quotes. That's no secret to me, at least, as I follow you on social media. Any final tidbits or thoughts that would help my listeners and give them support and strength as they consider building this plan and just in their recovery in general? Yeah. So there's three quotes that I always bring up when I talk about this concept of relapse preparedness. And, and, and you know, I found they've each touched me in different ways and they often touch my clients and other partners that I meet in different ways as well. So the first one is a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. You know, we as human beings can set up all kinds of self-protection around us that actually become walls that keep us isolated from the lives that we actually live. We have purposes, right? We're not here for no reason. We don't want to live for no reasons. And so remembering that we have that purpose that is not all about living in self-protection mode, but that it's okay to take some risks like choosing to fight for your relationship, even if that feels like a more courageous decision than a safe one. Another quote that I love is, birds sitting on a tree is never afraid of the branch breaking because her trust is not on the branch. Her trust is in her own wings. So totally supports this concept of making it back all about us, not about them. You know, what can we build in ourselves so that if the bottom falls out of our most intimate human construct, you know, our relationships with our nuclear family, we're, we know that we're going to be able to fly where you know that we've got what it's going to be able to take to survive that. And the last one, I love this one, the Baal Shem Tov, a Jewish author, mystic, teacher, philosopher, says, let me fall if I must. The one I will become will catch me. So that concept of we are becoming the kind of women who are going to be able to tolerate whatever life throws at us next, even if it's the last thing in the world we ever actually want to have happen. Wow. Beautiful. Those are great quotes. Aren't they? <laughs> and I'm going to put those in the show notes so everybody can have those because I think that those are fantastic and they're a great summary of what we're talking about. Thank you so much, Galen, for taking time to talk about this and offering not only hope and encouragement, but very specific details on what actionable things listeners can do to prepare themselves and hopefully spread this message to other women so that people aren't just living their lives paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's, that's no good, right? <laughs> Nope. All right. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity. You can learn more about Galen and her work and even read some of her blog posts on her website, womeneverafter.com. And I do want to thank Galen for taking time to be with us on the Illuminate podcast. Isn't she fantastic? And good news for all of us. She is going to also join me in the next episode where we are going to talk about a different topic, the topic of sexual abandonment and how women can heal when they lose that attachment and that connection in their relationship. And there's some great stuff that she'll share, including an acronym that she came up with that really helps women organize their experience as they do that grief and loss work. So look forward to that. That's coming in the next episode. And once again, thank you all for listening to the Illuminate podcast. I love hearing your feedback, your suggestions, your comments. Please feel free to reach out to me at G-E-O-F-F at trustbuildingacademy.com. That's Jeff at trustbuildingacademy.com. I look forward to connecting with you and hearing from you all the things that you love and all the things you'd love to hear on this podcast. And of course, always open to feedback about any kind. So thanks once again for joining me and I'll catch you on the next episode.